to be glorified. May you speak to our hearts this morning. And we'll truly give you all the praise and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're back in that book of Revelations. And um, as we've been picking it apart at different areas, that great multitude that no one could number, boy, somebody had to witness to them. That 144,000 that is there, somebody had to witness to them, share truth. The Lord says that he will always provide him a remnant, or he'll always provide himself with a witness. Understand that principle. God is never without a witness. God will always have a witness. In the worst of times, remember what I shared with you last week? Boy, when we look at the book of Revelation, we're looking at one of the greatest revivals that will ever take place. One of the greatest revivals that will ever take place. Because there's a multitude, multitude of people that are saved that cannot be numbered, he said. And the whole process is that is being done in the worst of times. In the worst of times. In the most difficult times. But God is, is going to be the one who's going to somewhat really spearhead this. And he's going to use two of his witnesses. If I can somewhat just paint a little picture with the Antichrist here now. And we talked about Babylon and what it meant. Went back and looked at Babylon and some of its worship and its idol gods and so forth. We looked at Nimrod, who means rebellion. So we know that rebellion is there. Everything is against God. But yet in the worst of times, God glorifies himself. God is still saving God is still delivering. God is still doing. Now, either the church is in the weakest state it could ever be, or like we some would propose, the church is gone, but there's some religious activity going on, something's going on. Because where we pick up in this chapter 11 is in the temple. So some religious thing is going on. Now, there are things about this Sometimes when I read commentaries or read other things on it, when it just wants to sell it with the Jews and Jews only and just point to the Jews, well, when you read in that chapter, the God's talking about other nations too and tribes and languages. And he uses the word Gentile in that same verse with the temple and so forth. So it's not just about Jews. Though, as we mentioned earlier, Jerusalem is the center of the world. And everything is taking place around where? Jerusalem. And we're still looking at Jerusalem today, aren't we? Because everything's taking place around what? Jerusalem. And what we want to understand is this. That even in Jerusalem, even in the worst of time, God is going to raise up. Two individuals that are going to be his witnesses. God provides. And if you're a witness of the mighty works of God, and if you give testimony to the mighty works of God, God will do the same thing. He will empower. 
He provides and he empowers his witnesses that they might truly glorify him. He does it. So when we pick up in that chapter 11, it says, I was given, and he's talking to John, and John says, I was given a rod. I was given a a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altars and count the worshipers there. Now he gives us a little picture there about, now that's the earthly temple. But drop all the way at the end of the chapter with me. And he says in that verse 19, then God's temple in heaven. So in one way he's going to show us two temples very quickly in this chapter. This was happening on earth. This is the one in heaven. And understand, the one on earth, yes, the Antichrist was sitting there glorifying himself, making himself to be something. But that's okay because he's not sitting in the real seat. The real throne is where? In heaven. Only one sits in that throne. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives us a picture, but hear what he's doing now. Whether this is the first three and a half years or going towards the second three and a half years, something's taking place. Remember the covenant in Daniel that the Jews would make with the Antichrist? And they have built their temple now under the authority and the watchful eyes of the Antichrist. And that agreement and the whole process that they are now in it worshiping. And the Lord says to John, measure it. Oftentimes when we think of the word measuring, we're thinking one foot, two foot, three inches, four inches. We're not looking at the quality of something. We're not looking to see if it really qualifies or if it meets the standard. And here I think what God is talking about in that verse 1, does it meet the standard? I need a 2 by 4 in that home. I don't need, I need an 8 foot 2 by 4. I don't need a 4 foot. I don't need a 6 foot. I don't need a 7 foot. I don't need a 7 foot 10. I need an 8 foot. That's the only thing that will qualify. And when God's looking in his temple... He's looking at the people. That's why he tells him to number the worshipers. Look at the worshipers. When you come in to worship God, what standard are you giving to him? Are you giving him your best? Are you giving him your full attention? Are you really praising his name because he's worthy to be praised and you know it? What standard do you hold God to? And because you hold God to a high standard, how do you present yourself? How do you present yourself? When you speak out to him, how do you present yourself? Are you speaking in honesty? Are you a person of integrity that when you speak to God? Yes, God knows it all. He knows all about my life. But how many of us lie to God? How many of us don't even share with what is going on in our life with God? We're asking, give me this, give me that. But are we meeting the standards to even qualify for God to give to us? For God to bless us? And he says to John, John, measure their value of worship. Does it meet my standard? Do they qualify? Boy, wouldn't it be something if God just stood at that door 
and everything that didn't qualify, he would just reject it from coming in? Because you would have to meet a certain standard. I wonder how many of us would be in there. I wonder if I would even be in there. Because God has a standard. And you have to qualify. You have to be willing to make the sacrifices to meet those standards, to be holy, to be separate from the world, to be different from the world, to respond differently. You have to be willing to meet the standard that God has set. And we have brought the standard down so low, even in the church, that everything can come in and feel comfortable. And everybody shouldn't feel comfortable in the church. Sin should bother us. My conscience should bother us. Something should happen. Yes, everybody's welcome to the church. Everybody shouldn't feel comfortable in the church. There should be those who are overjoyed because they're coming to praise their God, to worship their God. But that one who is living in sin, when he stepped in there, something should happen that begins to convict. And he says, measure it. Measure the quality of their worship. Is it meeting my standard? Measure it. I was given a read with a measuring and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are included very quickly. They're there and they're trodden down. Well, that's been happening since Nazareth all the way down to Christ's return. But he moves on. Because John is giving this stick to measure. And then God is going to do something. You get into that verse 2 with me. He says, Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, the outer court. That is going to be trotted down. The Gentiles will be destroyed. When you get in verse 3, he says, And I will give power to my two witnesses. I'm going to give power to two of my witnesses. What is the purpose of the two witnesses? To bring the standard back. To bring the standard back. To lift up what God says qualifies. In other words, to share the gospel, to minister to people. If you can picture Babylon style of worship again, if we could understand the prostitution that was going on in Babylon's type of worship in temple, if we can understand what all was allowed in, all the idolatry, if we can understand all the heresies, and every heresy that is ever taught, we believe, basically comes from Babylon, rooted from that point. The issue really comes down to, boy, am I able to qualify? Are you qualifying? Are you meeting the standard? 
And he says, the Gentiles are trotting it all down. Why? I believe the Antichrist will be a Gentile, although some say he will be a Jew. He'll be a Gentile, not a Jew. The beast, most likely, will be a man empowered by Satan. Again, a Gentile. It never tells us that the Jews will trot it down, but always, in the sense of the Gentiles, will be the ones trodden down. What is the measure that God is looking for in that worship? Go to John chapter 4. John 4. In verse 23. First off, what God is really looking for is true worshipers. And he brings us to this place. And he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, the, the what? Now, now understand something. Anybody, anything can worship. But it's the quality of worship. And it's really knowing who you are worshiping. The more you know him, the more you're going to lift him up. And it's less about you. The more you know him, the more your prayer life changed to praise him and worship him. And less about you doing what? Asking about you and your earthly needs. It begins to change as you really draw nigh unto him. And as you really worship the Lord and you yourself dive in, there's something that takes place in your life, in your mind, in your heart that no one else can ever change. But as you begin to worship God, have you ever been in your basement, in your bathroom, anywhere just worshiping the Lord? And you get your own little dance on. You sing your own little song. And somehow the tears start coming down. It allows a relationship of worshiping and valuing Him. That you truly do value him. And he says, he's looking for those who will worship him. Boy, in spirit and what? In truth. In spirit and in truth. And in 914, he talks about a pure conscience, a clean conscience. Boy, all the stuff that enters into our mind, inner ends. All the things we see in this world. How do we separate that sometimes? We get caught up with even going to the supermarket and looking at the magazine. Sometimes you just got to just walk straight on through. Because once it's in here, it's there. And Christ says with a clean conscience. Not so much the outer garment, but the clean conscience. But while I'm on it, I might as well hit it. Roger, many of you know, moved to Denver. And Roger and I would be talking quite often while he was looking for a church. Roger went to churches where the pastor showed up with flip-flops and shorts and his football jersey on. 
ladies would come in with their short shorts and there's just their top part on. And even when I look at TV today, just a shirt, that, it's the time in which we're living in. And I understand we're trying to make everything somewhat neutral to the time we're living in. But we've lost something in trying to give God our very best. Our very best is true. It's from the heart. God doesn't look at our outer appearance. But I can remember my grandpa Ingo. My grandpa Ingo went to church. I don't know how many of you know what bib overalls are. He went to church with his bib overalls. And he would put his white shirt on with his bib overalls. And those overalls he worked in, but they, grandma always made sure that they were washed, clean, and also had that crease. Had to have that crease see, and that white shirt. But that's the best he could do. And then we got to a point, boy, we tried to outdress everybody going to church. We got the big hats, three-piece suits. We got everything. And it seemed like now we're going just the other way again. See, we're going the other way. True, God doesn't look at our dress. He looks at what? Our heart. You know. But oftentimes, IBM discovered something. When they allowed them to wear just their jeans and any shirt, they did not get the type of work that they were demanding. But when they told the employees they could not come any longer in their jeans or just slacks, but back to the suits and dressing up, their work picked up. The production of their work. Liberty University, they, they came with one good rule. And I like that they instilled it in my children. You dress professionally, you'll act professionally. And they put that in there. You know. The whole process... We keep lowering the standard of God down in the church that we can come any kind of way. And when we come dressed any kind of way, we come with lives any kind of way. With no intention of changing, with no desire to improve, with no desire to step up to a higher plane. Now, I'm not talking about anyone per se. But it's the day in which we're living that we are seeing a standard of God constantly going which way? Yeah. Yeah. You never have to worry about it. Go over to Psalm 51 too. Because, again, stand with that standard. Because when we come in, Hopefully you've already prayed, Lord, cleanse me. Cleanse me. One of the things we meet when we meet up in the office up there with the praise team and anyone else, our prayer is that, Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you will forgive us of our sins before we ever come down here, and that, Lord, uh, you equip us to minister to those who we're going to minister to. 
And that becomes our prayer up in the office, that we can have some effect down here. And in Psalms 51, 2, he says, let me get there, wash away all my iniquities. When you come in, do you come in clean? Do you come in praying, Lord, wash away all my iniquities? See, the priest, he had to wash himself before he could go into the Holy of Holies. Sometimes we, we, we laugh at the traditions of the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church, the moment you come in that door, has this little dip of water where you take your hand, put it in the water, boop, 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 and what that water represents is washing you before you step into the sanctuary, into the presence of God. It is washing you from the things of this world. But we can come in sleeping with somebody on Saturday night and ready for worship. We can come in, being in the bar, and be ready for worship. I'll never forget a young a father who had words with me, and I shared that with the elders, because we would not hire his son to play the piano. And I asked his son one thing. And he's 24 years old, Akron U student in, in music. Are you willing to be and practice abstinence from this point on? Well, that ain't none of your business. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. Because one of the things that I ask, are you sleeping around? Because you can't come here and play that piano and praise God in a proper manner. But you was with your girlfriend last night and you're not married and you're living all kind of way. You can't come play that piano and living, and some of you already know, we have those who are just right, little, that play for the churches. We can't live that kind of life and come play sacred music, music in which we're going to really praise the Lord. I'd rather do without it than to get anything. You following my thought this morning? God expects a certain standard, a certain quality of his people. Of his people. And the psalmist says there, wash me. Wash me. All my iniquities and cleanse me from my Sin. Wash me. Christ is not the sinner in this worship. And when you come to an area coming into the sanctuary, into the temple, Christ should be what? Center. He should be the centerpiece. Nothing else more important than Christ. It's not the pastor. It's not elders, deacons. It's not this group or that group. The most important thing in the church of the living God is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that He is being glorified. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. And that's what we got to get back to. We can't lose that. we got to really home in on that. That is Christ-centered. And everything that happens in the church is Christ-centered. It has its purpose around Christ and glorifying Christ. It's the gospel message that has to be delivered. Not a message that just tickles our ears. 
Not a message about this or about that. And in our community, boy, we'll send stuff around. And I was sharing something with Pastor Travis this morning that another pastor gave me about what happened down Carolina, the shooting of the nine. And I told him, you got to make a choice sometime. You got to put that stuff off because that kind of stuff sometime will take center stage. And when it comes to the church, Jesus Christ always has to be center stage. There are injustices that are going to take place. But we have not been called to preach that. That's not saying we're not concerned about it. That doesn't mean we don't stand up for justice. That doesn't mean that we're going to just close our eyes to it. But that's not the central focus of the church. And we can lose sight if we get on that bandwagon and not stay on this one. Amen? It's the wrong style of worship that's taking place. Now, there's many different styles of worship. But sometimes when Elaine and I are watching TV, we ask ourselves, what are they both doing? Who are they really glorifying? And the whole process is that you want to be able to glorify the Lord. What is decency today? What is that? To do everything in a manner that glorifies Him. God's authority was given to these two. And He gives it for a purpose. And you have to understand, God has given you authority. If you are one who witnessed for the Lord, God has given you the authority to do so, but he also empowers you to do it. When we look at the next couple of verses, 4 through 5, he says, These are two olive trees and the two lampstamps that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Must die. Boy, I tell you, if God gave me some fire out of my mouth, we'd clean up a whole lot of stuff. But God empowers them for their protection. Because when you Seriously, stand up to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody's going to try to knock you down. You need to understand that. Somebody's going to try to knock you down. Somebody's going to hit at you. Somebody's going to take a swing at you. Somebody's going to say something about you. Somebody's going to try to slander your name. Somebody's going to try to bring up your past. Somebody's going to do something to silence you. And he says, boy... He gave them power to be able to ward off their enemies. Now, he gave them the fire that can proceed out of their mouth. He gave them power to hold back the rain. He gave them power to turn water into blood. Now, in this text, it doesn't tell us who these two are. It doesn't tell us it's this person or that person. We do know one of them, most likely, is Elijah. The other one 
many of us assume is Moses. Enoch has no real purpose. Enoch didn't do anything really famous other than it says he walked with God and he was taken. But both Elijah and Moses both demonstrated what is the signs of these two. They both did it. Elijah held back the rain. Moses turned water into blood. Both Elijah and Moses are seen with Jesus at the transfiguration. So we believe that it will be those two, although the two names are not really given, but we believe because of the signs that are there that it will be these two. Now, the two witnesses, Elijah and Moses, who I said, Matthew 17, transfiguration, the whole process that is going to be these two, it's there. I believe it will be those two that are going to be there. And we need to understand that God then, he empowers them. He empowers them to produce plagues that they can use them whenever they so desire. They can bring a plague into a person's life or a community's life or into a country's life or a nation's life whenever they so desire. And it says in that verse 6, boy, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want it, as they want it, they could do this. Now, when there's ministry that is completed, it's time to go home. When our ministry here on earth is done, it's time to go home. Now, understand this. If you read the Big No Journal, somebody lying. Because in the obituary, I never read in the obituary, he went to hell. I never read it. It's always home going. Okay. Or to his heavenly reward. Now, that might be the true one. No more. He's going to get some kind of reward. He's going to go to hell. Not here. You made the wrong turn. You're supposed to be that way. Not this way. And the whole process is that every time we open up the Beacon of Journal, everybody has gone to heaven. Well, something's wrong with that. Al Sharpie, he, he, he preached a funeral, and it was about the first time I ever had an opportunity to agree with Al Sharpie. He was doing a funeral of one of the gangbangers in New York. The man had shot two or three other people, and he himself was shot. And he's doing the funeral. And his statement is this. You call on us ministers to come in and make these individuals like angels when they have lived like devils. And it's impossible to do. We cannot make someone an angel or put somebody in heaven who had lived like the devil and like they're straight from hell just because we're called to do the funeral. He said that is a difficult position for any pastor to be in. 
And he was right. You can't take a gang bang. You can't take the young man who shot four kids out there in North Akron. You can't take the young man who killed this couple. You can't take the ones who have been shooting around here and somehow bring them in. And all of a sudden make them what? Saved in angels. And yet somehow we try to do that to the wrong group. Everybody isn't going to heaven. But when your ministry is over and you truly know the Lord, you're going home. You're going home. So in verses 7 through 10, it tells us, Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation, that's everybody again now. will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Look at the state where we fall into. That we're going to allow bodies just lay in the street and rot. Let me assure you of something. God knows your ministry and he knows your time. Go to Psalms 39.4. Let's look at a couple of verses. Psalms 39.4. God knows your time. He says, Show me, O Lord, my life, my life's end, and the number of my days, and let me know how fleeting is my life. How many of you see your life really fleeting, really running by? Really taking off. Understand this. The Lord says, Boy, work wise yet day for what's coming? Night is coming. Be as busy as possible. Don't get tired of doing God's work. Stay with it. Hang in there with it. Perform it. Do it with all your might, with all your power. Because, see, you're going to be at home on time. You won't be late getting home. When I was a youngster, the rule was be at home on that front porch when street lights cut on. Y'all don't have that rule. Hey. Tori, you don't have that rule, do you? Be home by the time street lights cut on. Hey. Hey. See, one, one of the things was this. Parents back then weren't able to buy a watch for every child. Especially my dad with 14 children. He wasn't going to buy no watch for every child. But you knew approximately when those street lights were going to cut on. And when mom looked outside that front door, on the porch, you knew to be there. Hey. None of you. Remember Barbara Norris? Boy, went out to minister with her. 
And Barbara wanted to die in the nursing home. Just, I don't understand why I'm here. I'm ready to go. And all that I could assure Barbara is that you won't be late getting home. You won't be late getting home. Don't worry about that. Why? God has already numbered your days. He got it down to the hour, the very last minute, the very last second. He knows when you're supposed to check out. God knows your whole ministry time. So why you have to strip, work, labor, whatever your hands find to do, do it for the glory of God with all your might. Do it. Because you're on your way home. You don't have long. Do it. Do it. Don't put it off. For tomorrow's not promised to anybody. Do it. And he simply says, Boy, God already has numbered my days. He knows my time. And in Second Timothy, take this lesson. Now understand these two men. These two men stood by themselves. And oftentimes, for you and I, we don't like to stand by ourselves. We don't like to be the only Christian. We don't like being the only mouthpiece. We don't like being the only witness. We don't like to be the only light there, so we'll dim our light down. Go to 2 Timothy 4, 17 with me. And he simply, listen to what Paul says. Let me get there. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. The Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. Jump back up into verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my what? You know what we're always looking for? Somebody to support us. Somebody to give me this. Give me that. When will you stand on your own? When, you, when will you shoulder your own? Now, understand this. We all need help sometimes, don't we? But I want you to look at these two witnesses here. Where's the rest of the church? Where's the rest of believers? Where are the rest of saints? Where are the re- Where's anybody? And it would have been so easy to say, Lord, this is too much. Lord, you don't understand what I got to face. Lord, you don't see what's coming against me. Lord, you don't have to suffer what they're putting on me. Lord, you don't have to take this beating. There are times in ministry you stand alone. Even when you're the only one in high school standing. You stand alone. And you declare the Lord. You declare the Lord. And it doesn't matter about our age, do it? We got to make a decision. Will I stand for him? You know, I may not have my best friend with me. I may not have my gang with me. I may not have my bangers with me. I may not have what I want. You know, my brother's a pastor. Uh, uh, y'all got to watch these pastors today. 
because they know nobody stands with them. Just by every pastor in Akron is packing a gun today. And what we've forgotten is this. God is standing with us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And these two witnesses knew who had called them, who had empowered them. And put that in your mind. God has called me. God has empowered me. It doesn't matter of the hour of the day and what's going on in our community, what's going on in this world. God has empowered you. And God will open your mouth if you will align and be His witness. And He will protect you. But when it's over, it's over. And he simply says, when it came their time, it was over. He uses the word. They had finished their testimony. One day, you will be finished giving your testimony. One day, you will be finished witnessing. One day, you won't have to talk to a niece, a nephew, a son, or a daughter, or a neighbor, or a co-worker about the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be over. Now, God is the one who interrupts parties. These two witnesses, and it's the same thing that happens to you also. These two witnesses caused problems to those who were in sin. The place of their death is Jerusalem, called Sodom and Egypt. I believe it's called Sodom and some because of the moral issue. Morals are out the door. Morals are gone. But they're in the temple worshiping, but no morals. I believe it also stands for Sodom was against God and constant rebelling. A constant rebelling. And we have that in our churches today. Constant rebelling. Constant fighting against God. Not willing to submit to God. Not willing to submit to the leadership that God even places over us. We're not willing to follow God's word. Oh, we're willing to come in and jump and shout and sing and praise. But really coming to a place where we submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Submit ourselves to his word and believe it and perform it. Submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit that he might order our steps. To submit ourselves to those who are in authority over us. And that can be difficult because a person can misuse authority. But people who understand authority are often under authority. And those who are under authority, under the authority of Jesus Christ, will be held accountable greatly for how they use authority. We should never fear authority. 
Because authority is of God. It's what brings order. It's what allows peace. Is authority. Egypt, all of its idols, is mentioned. I think, again, it's the captivity of God's people. Holding God's people captive. As Babylon will do. The Babylon temple and that whole process. It will hold God's people with all this false teaching captive. And the people will choose to believe a lie and be held captive. God breaks up the party, though, in verses 9 and 10. Because, boy, when people begin to see these two witnesses, they're dead. They're dead. Those iPhones and that, that their YouTube mess is going to flash it all over. You'll have it. You'll see it. Okay. It's going to be on YouTube. I imagine they will be flashing it all over the place. And they'll be rejoicing. They're going to have a party. Okay. And we're trying to get it ready now with the legalizing of the marijuana in every state. Boy. Uh, it's going to be more than recreational medicine. The whole issue is that people are going to be ready to party. Understand this. When God's word goes forth and the gospel is really teach, taught, it brings torment to people. God's will will do one or two things for you. It will give you peace or it will torment you. It will give you peace or it will torment you. It will cause you to think of your sin. It will cause you to look at your sin. And oftentimes, why people don't want to hear God's word or talk God's word, because it's going to be dealing with their what? With their sin. And none of us really want to deal with our sin. We don't want to look honestly at our sin. We don't want to say shacking up is wrong. We don't want to say living is wrong. We don't want to say, oh yeah, you're a father of seven kids, but not married to any of the mothers. But you got seven children. We had one guy here, boy, we was congratulating him here at the daycare on his fifth child. He said, no. What was he laying? 25 children? 22 children. By a number of women. But we don't want to be challenged with that. We don't even want to be challenged because the Lord says, if you work not, you don't eat. Now, I'm not kicking on welfare. We all need help sometimes, but it shouldn't be a lifelong style living. It should be a time that we're planning to get off of that and move on. The word makes you really look at yourself and examine yourself. And it says because they delivered the message of God, because they were preaching God's word, it said it tormented the people. And when the people heard that they were dead, they rejoiced because it was time to party now. And when you remove the word, you remove the gospel, you take it out of a community, you remove it, the community will partake. 
Because there is no boundaries to sin. There's nothing that comes against it. There's nothing that's fighting against it. There's nothing to call it into check. And people are free to do whatever they so desire to do. So when you hear people say, oh, I'm not ready to be saved yet. One thing they're saying is, I want to keep on doing my thing. When people tell you, uh, 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 I'm not ready to come to church yet. What they're trying to say is that, no, you're not going to put me under any rules, any stipulations. You're not going to tell me how to live. And we all have that sense that we want to govern ourselves. We want to rule ourselves. And it says, God broke up the party and he breathed life back into these two bodies. And he said, those that saw it were fearful. Were fearful. Were fearful. God will bring up every simple party. God's going to break up your marijuana party. God's going to break up your crack party. God's going to break up your adulterous party. God's going to break up every type of party that is sinful. He's going to break it up. And God will always have his two witnesses. He's always going to have a witness that will glorify his name, share his message, and people will be delivered. So therefore, when you go from chapter 11 and you get over into the other chapters and you hear the 144,000, that are marked. You hear a multitude of people have been saved. Where does that come from? I believe it comes from these two witnesses. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Never be ashamed of it. Speak it. Speak it. Speak it. Share it with your grandchildren. Share it with your children. Share it with your loved ones. Share it with your co-workers. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation. Not ashamed of it. Not ashamed of it. Will it correct my lifestyle? Yes, it will. Will it hold me back from doing things that sometimes I want to do? Yes, it will. Will it keep me from going on the crooked path? Yes, it will. Will it sometimes take away my happiness and joy of this world and the things I would like to do in this world? Yes, it will. But when we read about you in the obituary, we'll be able to say, they did go to heaven because we know your lifestyle. We know in whom you have believed. We know in whom you have followed. These two witnesses. They are two individuals. I don't know if I could have done that. To face a whole world in rebellion against God in a sense. No help. No support. Nobody there for me. But God. But when you put but God in there. That makes a world of a difference. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that you really do provide and empower your witnesses. And that, Lord, you equip us, O oh God, to be able to protect ourselves from the enemy. And you have equipped it, each and every one of us. We thank you for the armor that you've given us of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the helmet of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the breastplate of righteousness. We thank you for the sword that is your word and the shield of faith. We thank you, Lord, for the armor that you have provided us as we go into warfare in this community and in different places of our lives. That, Lord, you're the one who will always protect us. And, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, we don't have to depend on ourselves and witnessing, but that, Lord, your Holy Spirit just desires to use us. And all we have to be willing to do is be used of him. Be willing to say, yes, Lord, and allow him to witness through us. He knows what he wants to say to every woman, every man, every child. We're only the vessels of his words. Help us, Lord, to be able, O oh God, to qualify to be used of your Holy Spirit. Help us, O oh God, to constantly be washing ourselves in the blood of Christ. Help us to desire to have that mind of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be able to see that, Lord, we are a kingdom of priests. Help us to understand that we're just journeying through this land and our home really is heaven, not earth. Lord, may you minister to us. And I pray, Father, that you will continue to bless this church. We pray for Pastor Travis's house, that all that is needed will be provided. Because, Lord, we believe that you're more than able. 